are you? I'm doing all right. I'm already counting down the days till summer. Yeah, I feel that. Uh, the semester always gives me, I feel like a uh, meat tenderizer has been working at me. Right, why is spring so much harder than fall semester? Allergies! <laughs> Allergies! I feel like there's always more travel in the spring semester for some reason. Well, that's because I avoided all my fall travel. So yeah, it's all creeping up on me. Anyway, so who do we have on the show today, Chris? Uh, we have Siobhan Madison and we have Mary Shank. We do. And uh, we'll be talking about the evolution of inequality that was uh, published in Evolutionary Anthropology. And I know that sounds odd since we usually do AJHB articles. Uh, but Mary was supposed to come out to UAlbany for a, a seminar and she had to cancel due to pneumonia, uh, but she still wanted to do this podcast. So we're super excited to invite them both on today. Well, I'm really excited because I know that um, we, we, we often cloister ourselves in sub-disciplinary and sub-sub-disciplinary boxes like evolutionary anthropologists, human behavioral ecologists, human biologists. But at the Human Biology Association a few years ago, one of the things that Andrea Wiley and others told me is we are whatever type of research we do and we mm -hmm. aren't restricted to the few things that we see maybe published in AJHB. Um, the society and the journal are somewhat different and I consider myself a human behavioral ecologist. That's what my lab's called even though I do most of my presenting at the Human Biology Association. So I know both of their works and I, I'm really excited by this. Yeah, no, I'm excited. This was a, a fascinating article and one that I think is going to remain relevant for, yeah, the foreseeable future. I really wanna to talk to them. I know we'll just have a short conversation today, but I think a lot about social inequality because of the work that I have done. And I think all of us do in the world that we live in and that's on such a short and recent time scale. So to really think about social inequality, which we really think about as a human thing in the context of, of evolution uh, makes me wonder um, is, is if, if we took the model that they lay out in this paper, probably won't have time to talk about this today, but can we look at other organisms and see, see inequality in ways that we don't have moral and ethical judgment about, but, you know, that, that mirrors what we see among humans? Well, that's, yeah, no, it's, it's good stuff and it deserves all the attention it can get. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started and bring them on. Cool. So the article we're going to talk about today is uh, The Evolution of Inequality, which was in Evolutionary Anthropology in 2016. For full disclosure, Mary was supposed to come to UAlbany for a seminar, uh, but she came down with pneumonia. So she didn't make the trip, which was intelligent on her part for sure. <laughs> but uh, she was still willing to do this uh, podcast interview today. And I suggested that we work on this paper and she invited Siobhan, her co-author with us on this paper, to be a part of the interview as well. And so if you could just provide you know, a brief overview of this paper. Uh, I think that'd be great for our listeners. You're first author, so you should probably do it. But if you don't want to do it, I will. But so an overview, this is a, a quite a lengthy article um, that covers a lot of territory in the evolution of inequality. I guess our sort of overarching goal for the paper was for it to serve as a synthesis of some of the more persuasive arguments um, in the evolutionary realm that were meant to explain uh, both the original origins of inequality in different times and places and the maintenance of inequality and how it might benefit different kinds of individuals. And so we basically boil everything down into a couple of very general factors 
that we think sort of explain the sort of adaptive benefits of um, inequality very generally, and those are economic defensibility and the intergenerational uh, transmission of wealth. So that when those two factors are present and the individuals are differentially able to control resources, you're very likely to see inequality arise and persist. That was very succinct. Like you did, because <laughs> I was reading through the paper, you know, the, the other day before I sent questions along and yeah, very well done. Mary, do you have anything to add before we, we move on? Well, Siobhan already mentioned this, but I think that the goal of the paper was to synthesize these things in an evolutionary context. Mm -hmm. And some of the articles that we're citing and types of uh, data and theory we're drawing on are evolutionary in origin, but some of them are not from an evolutionary tradition, but we're trying to tie them in using evolutionary uh, theory, including economic defensibility of resources and things about you know, past distribution and contest competition and things like this and dominance that trying to link those things, even if they're not originally in those literatures to that literature and make clear, the, um, make clear that, that connection. Yeah, it was absolutely impressive seeing all the different theories, anthropological and not, uh, and different models that you two, you, you two and your other co-authors brought into this paper. Uh, it was impressive. And so I know when we had talked about it, you said this is gonna be a quick and easy answer, but reading through this, I, I couldn't help but think like, wow, someone is gonna try to twist this and turn it into, you know, inequality is just natural selection at work. So therefore we shouldn't try to fix, you know, systemic institutional inequality. And uh, I'll just go ahead and ask the question, did anyone, any either, any authors receive any sort of push on that or get any commentary about that? I, I didn't receive any. And my guess is that if we had gotten that kind of response, I mean, I would expect it as a possibility, right? Mm -hmm. But I would expect it to happen, especially um, in response to news coverage, just given yes. my personal history with news coverage of different papers and the way things get picked up, not sometimes by journalists, but often by people commenting on things online. And this got a little bit of coverage, but I think it's been more influential in the field, right? Mm -hmm. Within people in biological and cultural anthropology who are interested in these things. And I think those people are just uh, less likely to take such a simplistic perspective, honestly. Um, so I would, be, I would be worried and feel like we need to make that argument um, more clearly. If, for example, I were being interviewed by someone in the popular press, I'd be concerned. Yes. But I, I've gotten less of that kind of um, concern from this. Okay, wonderful. Anything? I think it's a great question, actually. I'm sort of glad that you asked it because I think so much of what we do, especially as kind of adaptationists, can be distorted in that way. Um, and certainly this, this kind of a topic, inequality, it's easy to think of it as a very obvious feature of an adaptationist perspective because everything that we do sort of relies on the differential reproductive success um, of the human species. And so um, I think we were uh, careful in the article, however, to um, bring up case, at least one case study of a reversal from a more unequal state to a relatively egalitarian state. And also to make it really clear that humans have lived in a relatively egalitarian state for the vast majority of their history. And so the arguments that we make are relevant to understanding the evolution of inequality, but they're also relevant to understanding um, the kinds of things that militate against inequality. And I think you could use it either way. Mm -hmm. I would also just piggyback on that. I mean, 
just rereading this morning the section about control of resources and what allows people to do that or allows people makes people willing to allow others to monopolize resources i mean you've got this is old in the history of anthropology that you have prestige um mechanisms for having um control over resources and then you have power mechanisms right so something closer to dominance and and in one of those cases a prestige mechanism um it's not these are non-coercive more mutualistic situations and i think you can get we argue both that this is probably the first step that societies take we have good ethnographic evidence to suggest that but also i mean we could if we wanted to and that's not really where we went with this i mean there's lots of examples of mutualism and prestige being important in modern societies that are highly unequal too right it, it, and so there are different there's still different routes right mm -hmm. regardless both in the past but also in the in the present that were emphasized in the paper oh, wonderful thank you one thing that the paper suggests is that climate stability played a really important role for persistent institutional inequality to actually occur that you needed climatic stability in order to have you know the economic defensibility and then leading to wealth transmission uh, and then of course the the inequality and so i was kind of wondering what your take is on an increase in climate instability such as you know what we're starting to see nowadays is that once that stability takes place and then the inequality is in place does climatic instability then further inequality or would you see kind of uh, a contraction of that so this is some conjecture i'm sure but I'm, just <laughs> I'm happy to answer that uh, and then siobhan can piggyback on that so i think there's actually i've been asked this question before and i've had to think about it um in, in a couple of contexts partly because of this this talk that i'm not giving at albany right now but hopefully <laughs> on marital assortment which is um, along with intergenerational transmission or inheritance of wealth another mechanism by which you can um, by which inequality can um, persist and be you know sort of promoted over, over time in societies and there's two things one that this also goes along with some other work that we've both been involved with with these sort of other projects that some of are which are cited in the paper but one of the things that's really clear to me is that shocks can have a couple of different these are what economists call shocks right um, shocks can have a couple of different outcomes, and one of them is that they can enable individuals who are already in power, which is what you're suggesting, to kind of um, use that power to, they can just be the only ones who win, right, or they're the only ones who remain in good situation after you have some kind of um, drought or something, so they, they can do better. But then things can get bad enough that whole social systems can collapse because of this. I mean, you have Jared Diamond's work and you have the work of a variety of other people's that, people that argue that um, shocks can have different effects that can take elites out of power for a variety of reasons. And so I don't feel like it's clear um, mm. what increasing climate instability will do. Mild instability probably doesn't have the capacity to create quite as big social change, but really significant instability, I think, it's it's anyone's guess as to what happens right lots of things can change and we have archaeological and ethnographic and historical um evidence that that supports that mm -hmm. so it's, it's more like a bottleneck than a selection event potentially right i mean in the sense that things change a lot right not not in the sense that you necessarily go down to a small population yeah. right and and the sampling is is random you don't necessarily right. kill like, off everyone 
lots of things come out of that and it really depends on the, the situation in which people originally start what the distribution of resources is what the institutions are in place how to what degree those are really compromised by the instability because some in some cases they may be compromised more than in other cases so i feel like there's a lot of potential outcomes and that we may be seeing some of those potential outcomes with increasing climate instability certainly in some parts of the world that are more affected so we aren't necessarily doomed to a Mad Max style world <laughs> in the next 10 to 15 years. Not necessarily, is what I'll say. I'd say it's a pretty, if you took, the, if you took our model very literally, uh, I guess it would suggest that increasing instability would um, lead to a reduction in inequality. I, I would say that uh, everything that Mary says is true because we're starting from a completely different place. Um, that, you know, this part of the model, I think, actually is the most easily um, overextended part for a naive reader, and that we were really using it to illustrate how uh, inequality evolved around the Holocene, so that um, extending that to contemporary conditions where material wealth is already so important to uh, human societies is probably not um, something we really intended to do. And the other thing I would say is that that would be a very twisted benefit of um, climate instability, so not the main mechanism I would endorse for reducing inequality. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. That's It doesn't really benefit anybody or the planet in the long run. Right. Yeah. Right. Of course. Um, and then something that I was curious about, and I, I do not know the archaeological record at all in this case, but tipping points. Uh, you know, once inequality reaches some threshold, what is the tipping point for the, you know, the have-nots kind of revolting against the haves? And is there any evidence of this in the archaeological record? And what can we say about that? You know, I, I really don't know the archaeological evidence well enough uh, to make any sort of strong claims about that, to be honest. You'd probably have to ask. Ethan Cochran was the archaeologist on okay. the paper. I think what I can say is that it's something that we're all really interested in. We're trying to sort of get a grip on what uh, you know contributes to inequality, but we're all also really fundamentally interested in the kinds of things that can militate against inequality. Um, and some of the work on that uh, is appearing with people like Paul Hooper gave a presentation on this at AAA a couple of years ago. Um, but I don't think that the theory has been described well enough to, to really draw any firm conclusions about what a tipping point might look like yet. Okay. I mean, we, we could refer in that case to people who've made sort of arguments, including Jared Diamond, but I really would, right. I would just give a pitch that Paul Hooper's presentation that she's, that she's mentioning will be a part of a, a forthcoming uh, book that, um, that I'm um, editing with um, Brooke Shells and Jeremy Coster, which is kind of an, an, a big new compendium of sort of the state of research on hum, in human behavioral ecology, mm -hmm. which hopefully will be out in 2019. That depends on how quickly people get his chapters. <laughs> uh, we've got a bunch of chapters now. We're just sort of waiting for the rest. But Paul is writing a chapter on exactly this question. It's not all about tipping points, but that's mm -hmm. one of the topics he's interested in, where he's really trying uh, to put together some of the archaeological and uh, ethnographic literature on the evolution of inequality um, in, in a sort of broader um, and uh, since then what we did kind of building on what we've done but, but expanding on it and really focusing on what he thinks are the primary mechanisms mm -hmm. including the mechanisms that that undermine inequality and the ones that promote it specifically okay. including you know how you get sort of various kinds of um, social evolution 
Wonderful. We'll let this podcast be a gentle nudge to your chapter. Right? <laughs> um, Siobhan, I know you said you have a meeting. Should we yes. go now? Yeah, that would probably be good. I'm sorry if there's anything else. I could answer one more quick question before I go, but otherwise I probably should, yeah, take off. Uh, the next one is that we're probably going to be asking Mary about her future work. Uh, she, she had said that it, it segues nicely from this paper into that. But thank you so much for being a part of this and taking time out of your day to talk with us. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Right. And so, Mary, you said that this paper segues really nicely into some new work that you're moving towards. Would Go ahead and tell us about it if you're willing. So I can tell you about two things. One of them is joint with Siobhan and the other one she may be involved in the future, but she's less than in, less involved right now. And one of the things, which is what I was going to give the talk on today, uh, is really um, looking at the degree to which marriage can um, promote inequality. And so right now we have data from 28 small scale and kind of sort of um, transitioning into the market type of societies from around the world, some of them historical, a lot of them modern. Sorry, we're going to have an appearance by my uh -huh. cute dog My cats here. are in and out of this podcast all yeah. the time, so don't worry. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. So, um, and in that particular thing, one of the things we're exploring very specifically is whether or not um, we get, we have a lot of theoretical reasons to suspect that matching wealthier people with wealthy people, and that could be in terms of material wealth, that could be in height, that could be in any kind of characteristic, right, that has some kind of fitness benefits or status benefits, right, or resource acquisition benefits that um, any of that kind of matching has the potential to contribute to inequality in the long term, especially in societies where persistent institutionalized inequality already exists. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're looking right now to see what kinds, of, what kinds of types of wealth are more likely to be um, assorted on cross-culturally. And we're also uh, looking at the types of societies in which we see more assortment in marriage. And we have some very interesting results on this. In some senses, not surprising, but one of the, the more interesting results on this is that we, we know a lot of people assorted on material wealth of lots of kinds, and we see lots of positive assorted of mating on material wealth, specifically I'm looking at marriage here. But also we see some negative assortment um, in terms of material wealth as well, which could have different interpretations. But we see probably the strongest levels of assortment we see are on noetic wealth, which is a new kind of, which is basically knowledge, right? And we see that experience, that for both um, education, but we also see that for traditional forms of knowledge and occupational status and other things as well, which is kind of interesting um, and a result which in some ways is unexpected and in some ways is expected. So the question is, if parents are trying to either through arranged marriages or spouses themselves through their own decisions, and both seem to be true, are trying to maintain or improve their social status, and we know that people do this, we have a lot of evidence of sort of the ways in which they're doing this, and right now we're kind of at the, the final piece of this first paper where we're trying to um, estimate the long-term effects of these kinds of marital assortment patterns that we see on inequality in the long term, which is something that some of our related projects have done in the past. So that's one project that I'm working on that's relevant to this. And hopefully we'll be getting two or three papers out in the next um, the next few months. We'll be getting them out for review, right? We'll see when they actually hit the press, maybe 2019, I hope. Wonderful. And then was there another project you want to talk about? Or? I think another project that actually Siobhan and I, unfortunately she had to go, but 
Siobhan and I um, and another colleague of ours, Tammy Blumenfeld, um, who is at uh, Furman University right now, we recently got an NSF grant in which we're, with the whole focus of the grant um, is to study um, the effects on well-being and inequality of market integration, so increasing integration to market economy and the field site where they work in Southwest China among uh, Moso people who have both areas where um, things are traditionally matrilineal and areas of where things are patrilineal. And then in my field site in rural Bangladesh, that's been undergoing really, really rapid market transition in the last few decades. And we have a lot of different, and we've got in some cases longitudinal data, in other cases, uh, comparative data across families or villages that have different levels of personal in integration with the market economy. And we're looking at outcomes for wealth, material wealth, knowledge, both including education and traditional knowledge, and also social networks and health. So we've got both anthropometric and biomarker measures that we're looking at. And the goal is to try to get a sense of what's happening with inequality, but what, what's also what's happening with well-being um, with market integration in a very detailed um, micro-foundational way. That's probably a term they would use in economics, right? So that you really want to know what's going on at the household level mm. and at the village level, rather than a lot of the um, research into these trends, both in archaeology and also in economics, occurs um, at the level of um, the country or uh, the state or the district or something like that. And we have some data on what's going on at the household levels, but we often have a limited amount of data on particular variables. And ideally, we'd like to be able to see, you know, if you were a wealthy family, um, sort of in the days when everyone was an agriculturalist, does that affect your position mm. in the, you know, now, right? Now that market transition is going on, you're, you're more likely to be wealthy or not? Or is it people who are in a different position who didn't have land and therefore their children got engaged in the market economy earlier out of necessity? Are those people in a better position? So what happens to social networks? What happens to health? There's a lot of evidence that there's a lot of change going on, but we're especially interested in how these things affect each other and interact with each other. Well, this is fascinating, Mary. Your work is one, like I said, fascinating, but two, incredibly important. And this is the kind of work that I think needs to be done and is going to have a major impact. Chris? I hope so. Yeah, that's it, exactly. And congrats on the NSF. That's fantastic. Stuff is going to really come out of that. Chris, do you have anything? Uh, there's so many questions that I have. That <laughs> what I want to do is see if Mary and Shaban would talk to us in the future in, in more depth, because I'd really like um, uh, you answered some of my questions, which were, how did you come to this and what, how does it connect to your other work? I have some familiarity with both of your, your work in human behavioral ecology and right. it's, a, it's a field that I have a strong interest in. So yeah. I'd like to know the bigger picture when we have more time, but what I'm going to pitch is that we talk about, if you guys are doing triple uh, a this year we do some bass uh evolutionary anthropology joint sessions on work like this because i agree what you're doing is important and it, it it definitely you mentioned that you're drawing on a lot of work that's not interpreting things from an evolutionary perspective and right. I think that's what's lacking in a lot of the stuff that we in generally in general see right and so, i would say it's both important to draw on the non-evolutionary work because there's a lot of important empirical studies and some interesting theoretical work but i think to really Put these things together in the most convincing way. I mean, that's that's you know, evolutionary theory often does a very good job of that. I will uh, certainly be at the AAAs. I've organized a session already, but I'm just chairing it. I'm not actually speaking in it. It's um, 
it's actually been selected as an executive session. It's on uh, the big replica, replicability or replication crisis in science right now. So that'll be quite interesting um, session. But I'd love for EIS and BAS to put together some joint sessions on this. Great. We still have a little time this year, but especially next year. I mean, Siobhan and I are both EAS, Evolutionary Anthropology Society officers. And so we, yep. we, we go to the AAAs regularly. And I think this is something of interest, especially given that a lot of the people who are working in the area of inequality in sort of human behavioral ecology are starting to incorporate more health measures now. Yep. And so it becomes not just the behavioral side, but also the sort of physiological or health-related side. So that's even even more integrative than I think our um, subdiscipline used to be. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely fantastic. Having that but, collaboration across fields is so key. That's that's my sense of things as well. And I know there's a lot of talk by human human biologists that mm -hmm. they they believe that evolutionary theory is the foundation of what they do, but it's less clear for instance, to students and to people outside the disciplines when the question arises, why isn't everyone working together a little bit more? Mm -hmm. um, and so again, I applaud what you guys are doing in that respect because social inequalities is what we, in my department as biocultural anthropologists mm -hmm. and human biology programs that I've been involved with are really focused on. So uh, showing, get, putting that in that frame is a benefit to everybody, so thank you. Sure. Um, but yeah, and if you're willing, we would love to have you back at some point to do maybe a little bit longer form uh, of interview. I'm sure that I, I can absolutely say I'm interested, but I know that Siobhan would be interested in as well. And I mean, in the shorter term, there's other things we can talk about, including some of these projects because um, that we're actively working on. But in, you know, if we're talking about six months or a year from now, we'll actually have results coming out from our NSF, right? They won't be published at that point, but they'll we'll have analyses out. And right now we're just in the earliest stages of that. The China data is 99% collected and they are starting to work on it. The Bangladesh data is just in the continuing to be collected right now. And I'm about to go back this summer and finish the final piece of that. So I'm not, I'm not doing any analysis with that data yet. It's not ready, right? It's still in collection and data entry mode. So it'll well, take you, a while to get to the point where we've got really useful when, things. When you're ready to go on the lecture tour, um, you'll have to revisit your Albany lecture, and we have a, a biocultural and health anthropology seminar at Alabama, and we also have an 11-year-old evolution lecture series and a minor in evolutionary studies that I've been directing for several years, so having you down here would be a no-brainer. I'd love to come, and you know, being from Louisiana myself in, in many ways, although not born in Louisiana, but having lived there for most of my adult life and having a lot of family there, I'm very big fan of the South. Right on. And yeah, would love to come. Okay, good. We'll make it happen. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Mary. Thank you so much. Do you, um, do you have a way that folks can get a hold of you and find out more? Do you have Twitters or your Facebooks or? So I'm a I'm a social media holdout, uh, which <laughs> people don't like to admit, but I'm happy about it. They can email me mks74 at psu.edu. That's Penn State University. I recently moved to Penn State. Um, probably the best thing I know that Siobhan does have a Twitter handle. I couldn't tell you off the top of that. <laughs> we'll track it down. And also, but I have to say that um, the Evolutionary Anthropology Society has a Facebook page that's relatively active, and mm -hmm. I kind of even check it as a non-user occasionally through the through the EAS Society. <laughs> but I would say emailing me is probably the best way. And there's lots of people from our society to follow, including Siobhan for sure.
Perfect. Well, we'll, we'll get all those and put them in the uh, the program notes. So Siobhan's handle and uh, the EAS link to the Facebook page too. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Again, thank you so much for joining us. Please get better. Take care right. of yourself. I'm and glad this, this kind of takes my mind off the state of my lungs right now. Oh, so I have to go take antibiotics right now because of the positive chest x-ray yesterday. That was exciting. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, but, to think about it. Wonderful. All right, great. Thank you so much, Mary. All right. No Maybe problem. I feel better. Also, your game collection, super impressive. So uh, this, uh, uh, this is my postdoc game collection. Oh, okay. And it is super impressive. It's this big. is only part of it. <laughs> I knew Carol was admiring that. Yeah, he could see my eyes wandering, I'm sure, at times. <laughs> yeah, that is. This is the most impressive game collection I have ever seen in my life. He needs more shells. This is only part of it. Yeah, they have the most impressive game collection ever. <laughs> But anyway, I'm staying with them because of just having moved to town and my husband's out of town and being sick and all this stuff. So I am, we have a game collection, but it has like <laughs> 25 games in it. Yeah. This is, this is the real deal. Yeah. They, test, they test all the big game. They know everyone. It's really. Wow. <laughs> all right, Mary, take care of yourself and have a good right. day. Bye. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Yep. Bye. See you later. Bye. Bye. Uh, how can people find you, Chris? Oh, I'm, I'm on, as, as the podcasters say, I'm on the internet and the Twitter okay. at uh, Chris underscore L-Y uh, for the Twitter or on Facebook at my name, Christopher Dana Lynn, or find me at University of Alabama at cdlynn.people.ua.edu, especially if you're a grad student looking for a grad program. Oh yeah, I will double that. We're always looking for, for, for good folks over at UAlbany, which is where I'm at. Um, so you can find me on the Twitters and the emails on the Facebooks as well. Uh, so my email is C-O-C-O-B-O-C-K at albany.edu. And my Twitter is at Kara Akabak. So that's at C-A-R-A-O-C-O-B-O-C-K. Also, how sad is it that I have to look this up? in order to tell everybody. I don't know, but you can be sad about that because you're rocking the grant. So grad student, prospective grad students out there, Kara is pulling down the mean grant money. So you should be applying to go work with her. She's awesome. Tell us. And by mean grant money, he means like, you know, getting a few smaller, smaller grants here and there. Smaller ones turn into bigger ones. This, that is actually true. And that is the goal with this. Get, you know, the, the NSF Herbert grant and then the American Scandinavian Foundation grant. So thank you both for funding my work. So congratulations. Um, thank and I'll you. toot your horn if, if you're too modest. Oh, I should get a kazoo or something every time. Every time a, a manuscript gets some, uh, accepted or a grant gets awarded, I'm just going to, you know, toot a kazoo. Uh, anyway, you can also find me on Facebook and it's just Kara Akabak. Easy enough. Cool. And the Human Bio Association's on there too. So follow us and um, uh, check out all the previous podcasts we've done. We've got them on the site and on our SoundCloud and just Google Sausage of Science. Yeah, and if you ever have any suggestions or recommendations, please don't hesitate to get a hold of us. Yeah, otherwise we'll track you down. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you. Bye.